0: Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm your host, Jessica Lips, and in this interview series, I'm talking to extraordinary people who are living their dreams. It's my hope that their stories will inspire you to live your own dreams. I'm honored to welcome Gretchen Rubin as this month's guest. Gretchen is the New York Times best-selling author of The Happiness Project and Better Than Before, among others. Gretchen pens a monthly newsletter, hosts a weekly show on Facebook, and co-hosts a podcast with her sister on the topics of happiness and good habits. She has been seen on The Today Show and CBS Sunday Morning and has received many recognitions, including my favorite, being named to Oprah's Super Soul 100 (laughs) list. I'm excited to be with her today. Gretchen, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to get the chance to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to start at the beginning with where were you born?
1: Kansas City, Missouri. Missouri. Yes. Um I went to school in St. Louis. Oh, uh, Wash U. Wash U. Oh, so many people love Wash U now. My daughter's a senior in high school, and several of her good friends are going to Wash U. They're very excited. Yeah. Oh, that's so nice. Where's your daughter going? Does she know? Harvard. Harvard.
0: Oh, good for her. Where has the time gone that your daughter is a senior in high school? (laughs) Because the first time that I got one of your books, it was The Happiness Project, and she was younger and and
1: all of a sudden a senior. It's funny. I have this little video called uh, The Days Are Long, But The Years Are Short, and it's about sort of this idea of time passing. And it's more true than I even knew when I wrote it because um, it really is true. You know, one day I was like taking her on the bus to go to preschool, and now she's going off to college. So it really is funny because any one day can feel interminable. But then you're like, what happened to 2015? I don't remember a thing. (laughs) Yeah. So it's hard to kind of wrap my mind around it. Are you trying to maximize
0: the time with her? Actually, in one of your books, I think I read about how you had dates yep. weekly dates weekly does that adventures yes
1: absolutely it's, it does we have it in the schedule and we just went to the net the other day to see the irving Penn exhibit so we still do those weekly adventures and it's really an idea that i suggest to so many parents have time that you schedule in your calendar with a child by himself or herself even if it's just like 45 minutes or an hour it really makes you feel so much more connected to that child it's not that hard to do and it's really lovely
0: That's great. So going back to where you were born, did
1: you also grow up in Kansas City? Yeah, I lived there until I went away to college.
0: And where'd you go to school? Yeah. To Yale. In New Haven. And what'd you study?
1: English, not surprisingly, yes.
0: (laughs) Not at all. Yeah.
1: And then after that? I took a year off and was actually writing a novel in San Francisco and then traveled with my then boyfriend. Um, I have three or four novels like safely locked away in a desk drawer, and that was the first of the really bad novels that I wrote. So I did that. I had already been admitted to law school, but I decided to take a year in between. And so that's what I did. And then I went to law school a year later.
0: Nice. So it's interesting to me that here you are and you've studied English and Mm -hmm. you've worked on a book, Mm -hmm. yet you went to law school. So does that mean that you decided that writing at the time was just going to be a hobby or was a passion? What were you thinking? Well, you know, it's
1: interesting because I think now the attitude towards nonfiction has changed. There's a much broader idea of nonfiction and there's creative nonfiction and like you can go get an MFA in nonfiction and... There's a lot of recognition for sort of different forms and very unusual takes. But when I was in college, it was my vision at least was either you had to be a journalist or an academic or I needed to write like fiction or poetry or plays. And I didn't want to do any of that. And so I sort of had this impulse to write, but I didn't yet understand how I could fit myself into the model of a writer. And so I did what many, many people do with law school, which is I went for all the wrong reasons, which is I'm good at research and writing. I like to read. It'll keep my options open. I can always change my mind later. It's a great education. It, it prepares you for a lot of different careers. Well, spoiler alert, it prepares you for one career, which is to be a lawyer. And so if anybody is asking me whether they should go to law school, I say, if you want to be a lawyer, law school is terrific. And many people love being lawyers. My father loves being a lawyer. I have many, many good friends who love being lawyers. If you don't want to be a lawyer, don't go to law school because it's three years and it's really, really hard. It's very hard. It is not a lighthearted, you know, larkish experience. So I went for all the wrong reasons. And it took me a while to figure out how to fit myself into a writing career.
0: Did you realize while you were in law school that it wasn't the right fit or was it later that you, you came you to that realization? One of
1: the, the things that I've realized about myself over time that's very strange um, is that I never think about where I want to end up. When people say to me, where do you want to be in five years, I like literally never have any idea. I never really think about the future. And so in law school, I don't have a memory of ever thinking about like, "Well, what, where am I going to be in five years or what kind of lawyer am I going to be? which is very foolish. I think it's really good to think about where are you going. You're much more likely to hit a target if you aim at it. But the thing about law school is it gives you all these minor goals. You get to law school, it's like, you want to get a clerkship. Everybody wants to get a clerkship. So I'm like, okay, I'll get a clerkship. And then it's like, ooh, if you've got a good clerkship, maybe you can get a Supreme Court clerkship. I was like, yeah, man, I'll get a Supreme Court clerkship. <laughs> so I did that. So that's a couple of years, right? And so I went a good five years Um, Without ever stopping to think, like, well, what do I really want to do? And that's what happened. So then I was clerking for Justice O'Connor. And then finally it occurred to me, well, what am I going to do next? And that is when I started realizing, hmm. And I got an idea for a book that I wanted to write. I actually took one more job for like 18 months after the clerkship. But that's when I started thinking about making the transition into writing. Because I finally got to the end point where I was like, well, now I just have to figure out what I want to do next. And I thought, well, I don't want to get a law job.
0: Hmm. You said that you had an idea for a book you wanted to write. What was the idea and where did it come from?
1: All my books, I know exactly when I had the idea, like they hit me like a thunderbolt. So this one, I was, I went for a walk during my lunch break, which is what I often did. And I was looking up at the beautiful white Capitol dome against the bright blue sky. And I thought, what am I interested in that everybody else in the world is interested in? And I thought, well, power, money, fame, sex. And it hit me like this, power, money, fame, sex. And I saw them all being related. And I became obsessed with this idea of sort of understanding power, money, fame, sex, and um, so I started doing all this research around it. And that is something that happens to me often. Like right now, I'm in this color obsession. I'm just doing massive amounts of research about color for no reason. So this is something that's very typical of me. Like I will for be, no reason, just because I'm interested in it. Like it's not like oh, I actually am, have done it so much that I think I am going to write like a little book about color. But I'll get obsessed with something like Saint of Luzia or pain or whatever it is, and I'll do a bunch of research. And that's just kind of my nature. So when I started doing this, I was just doing all this research and taking all these notes. But then it was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and taking up more and more time. And finally, it occurred to me, this is what a person would do if they were preparing to write a book. And some people write books for their living and it's not a hobby. And maybe I could write a book and that could be my job instead of just doing this kind of side project. So I kept doing it and that indeed was my first book. It was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, User's Guide. But I think looking back on it, one of the things that was fortunate for me is that a lot of times people know what they want to leave. They know they don't want to be doing what they're doing, but they don't know where to go. Or maybe they know that they would like to be a writer, but they don't really know what they would write or how they would do it. I was fortunate because I'm like, I'm obsessed with an idea. I have have like 500 pages worth of notes, and I want to write this book. And I had a real vision for it. And so that made it a lot easier. It wasn't even so much that I wanted to leave where I was, but that I just desperately wanted to get to this other project and do it full time.
0: Mm. So you were doing the research and working on the notes while you were still a clerk? Yes, I would
1: stay late. Um, Yeah. How you had the time? Yeah, no, it was was weird. Yeah, no. And my husband was working in, in New York. We were living in DC. He was doing a lot of work in. Uh, New York. So I had a lot of time just where I could do whatever I wanted. So I would stay late and do all this research. Fun fact, um, if you are a Supreme Court justice, you can actually check books out of the Library of Congress. Like an average citizen can only look at the books in the library. But if you're a justice, you can actually take them home. So I would request all these books about power, money, many sex you know, for Justice O'Connor's uh, uh, chambers. And they never said anything about it. Librarians would just bring it and I would read it. My favorite was a book called, it's, it is an amazing book, which I highly recommend. It's called Deep in the Heart of Texas, the true story of three sisters who are all Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. And it is this extraordinary meditation on the nature of fame. But what the librarian thought of Justice O'Connor reading Deep in the Heart of Texas, I don't know. They never said a word. So anyway, I would really avail myself of the, of the resources. There.
0: That's
1: hilarious. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that Justice O'Connor never knew, um,
0: and that you didn't get in trouble. Yeah, I know. As wow.
1: well, yeah. I was like, well, the Chambers <laughs> is requesting this, and they were like, well, okay, whatever. <laughs>
0: and that there was no um, New York Post story. Yeah, that no, came. I know, right?
1: Yeah, no. There's there's a serious veil of silence surrounding the justices, and I definitely, I definitely uh, took advantage of that. So I was working on that book sort of as a side project, and then I went to work at the Federal Communications Commission for like eighteen months. And then my husband and I, I met him at Yale Law School, so he was also a lawyer. We both decided to leave law at the same time. We moved from Washington, D.C. to New York. We stopped paying our bar fees, and we both switched careers. So I moved to New York, and I was like, now I'm going to try to become a writer. And I, I had bought a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal, and I literally followed the directions. They were like, this is what you need. This is what should be in your proposal. So I was like, okay. But of course, now there's all this stuff online. There's so much more information. But at that time... I was like, well, I guess this is how you do it. So that's what I did. That makes it sound so much easier than it was, but that was basically what I did.
0: That's incredible. So you were doing that full time when you moved to New York. And it, did you have something else to support you or you just said, I'm going to go for it?
1: I mean, Well, at that time, I already basically prepared the proposal. So I was really just getting an agent. So I sold the book very soon after we'd moved because I was working on it all during that period, the proposal and, and the note taking. I hadn't actually written the book, but I had done enough to sell the book. Wow. To get an agent. That's great. What year is this? It would have been like 1998. Yeah.
0: So that sells and do you have this moment at that time that this is what you want to do or oh, you 100%. feel it like, no. yeah? yeah?
1: Really the the most powerful thing is to get an agent because I felt like once I had an agent it was like you know, time is money and somebody being your agent is like somebody basically using their time and their money on you. And so that I felt like transformed me into a professional. I still have the same agent. I love my agent, I have a brilliant agent. The minute she agreed to take me on as a client, I'm like, now I am a professional writer, and I've never looked back from that.
0: So you sold the first book. Were you just then focused on the
1: next book? So I want to go through the right, timeline of right, how what, we get to now and what the yeah.
0: progression has been.
1: So then I wrote a book called uh, 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill, which was just such Every book I write, I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's all downhill from here. I'll never enjoy writing any book, as much as I've enjoyed this book, and then the next book, I'm like, no, 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 this book is the best book. So I wrote that book, and oh my god, I love that book. And then, uh, and then I wrote a book called uh, Forty Ways to Look at JFK. This is a good example of how you never know what's bad luck or good luck. So, my, my. Biography of JFK, as they say in the industry, did not find its audience. That's what they say when your book is a big flop. It did not find its audience. So this book did not find its audience. And this was very, like, this is very upsetting to me. And also it matters a lot for a writer because your track record matters in terms of are you going to be able to keep writing books as a living because people have to keep giving you contracts. So it's, it's, it's important to keep selling if you want to stick with it. And what I realized is that I was totally powerless. Like, I could write the best book that I could, but then I, I couldn't make the Today Show have me on. I couldn't make the New York Times review it. I couldn't make anybody cover it. I couldn't reach anybody, myself. So I felt very powerless. And this was just at the time when blogs were becoming easy enough for non-techie people to use them. Simultaneously, I had had the idea for the Happiness Project, and I'd started doing the research for the Happiness Project. And I needed to do something to challenge myself. I had to do something where I would risk failure and where I would really do something novel and challenging. And so I thought, well, I could start a blog. And the blog would be something novel and challenging. And it was also a way to try to start to connect directly with an audience. And that's how that got started. So I'd written these books in the traditional model. And then when it came to the Happiness Project, I thought, now I want to try these new tools and see if this is going to help me connect with my audience. So I have my own way to promote my books. Um, Of course, I still would love all those other entities and people and organizations to pay attention to my books. But I want to have my own way of getting the word out as well.
0: So what were you blogging about?
1: Well, I had started the Happiness Project, I was working on the book, and so it was it was called the Happiness Project, and I would just write there about happiness. Yeah. And that was interesting because it really was a model of somebody creating a market for a book before it came out. Mm. Traditionally the idea is like, oh, hold everything back, and then there's like the red curtain pulls back, and everybody's like, Ta, there's a new book, it's so exciting, and like you don't want to reveal anything in advance, you don't want to give anything away because you don't want it to detract from the book. And I was like, I don't buy that. I don't think I and I still don't buy that model. I think you, you get people interested in something by by getting them into interested in it in any way you can at any point. So I had been blogging about The Happiness Project for like two years before the book actually came out. Yeah. And a lot of people think the blog came first. It didn't. The blog came out of the book, but the blog was what people could see because the book wasn't published yet. It's just what was out in the public eye. So
0: to me, doing The Happiness Project feels like a departure from a book about
1: JFK. Mm, Yes. Many say that. So can you talk about... (laughs) So tell
0: us a bit about that and
1: where it came from. Well, really all my books, even Power, Money, Fame, Sex, um, all really are about human nature. That is my subject is human nature. What, What are we like? Why are we the way we are? How can we change if we want to change? JFK and Winston Churchill are useful in studying human nature because they're such exaggerated characters. They went through so much that we have such an extensive record of what they thought and what they did and how they behaved. And they're just such gigantic figures that you can see certain things more clearly. Um, And so it's interesting to study in that way. And if you look at my biographies, they really emphasize that, that trying to understand what is it, really, what do you think about Winston Churchill? How does a person come out on Winston Churchill? So to me, all the books feel very related because they're all about human nature. Now, the Happiness Project specifically, again, there was like a massive epiphany. I know exactly where I was. Um, where I was, were you? I was on the Crosstown bus uh, at 79th and uh, where it crosses, uh, you know, like between Park and Madison.
0: That is exact.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. not just I was yeah, in New yeah, York yeah, or yeah, New yeah, York yeah, City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I was on this Yeah, cross yeah, 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 wow. yeah <laughs> No, it's right there. And uh, it was in the pouring rain. And I was looking out the window and I thought to myself, what do, what do I want from life anyway? You know how sometimes you have those weird moments of reflection? And I thought... I want to be happy. And I realized at that moment that I spent no time thinking about whether I was happy and whether there were ways that I could be happier. And I thought, you know, I should have a happiness project. And it like that's those are the words that came to my mind. And I went out the next day to the library, got a giant stack of books about happiness, and started researching. Like, if you looked at the ancient philosophy, contemporary researchers, pop culture, you know, novels, what do people say? Can you make yourself happier? And if so, how, what would you do? And for a while it was just gonna be for me. It was just again, because I'd become obsessed with these these subjects, I was just doing it for myself to kind of make myself happier and just cause I was interested in the subject. But it was so rich and it was so vast, the material, and I was so excited by all the things that I was thinking about doing. It was just sort of like becoming clear that it was gonna be a big project. And then I thought, oh, I could this could be my next book. Because it was just when uh, the JFK book was finishing up. So I was, you know, sort of in the market for a new idea. And um, and then I realized, oh, I'll do this. So it just sort of came to me like in a very a very specific way. All my books have been like that. My novel that I wrote that was a really bad novel was about the apocalypse. And again, I was in Washington, D.C. on Massachusetts Avenue. And all of a sudden, I was just like flooded with this idea of apocalypse and um, seized with the need to write a book about it. So it's one of my favorite things about myself is like I will get hit by these epiphany. Yeah. So you get this
0: idea. You have the epiphany on the bus. Yes. What's the next step?
1: So I did what I do with all my books, which is I just started doing massive amounts of research. I always do research through through reading. Some of the books were obviously about happiness, like a book called something like, you know, The Pursuit of Happiness. And I always just take notes on anything that strikes me. It's always very clear to me whether something is worth a note, like taking notes on it or not. So I will just start taking notes on anything that catches my interest. And I will do that for months, like if I'm preparing for a book. And at a certain point, there's sort of enough material that I start thinking like, well, how would I organize it? If I wanted to deliver all this information, which I think is like the most interesting information, or the things that are puzzling me, the things that seem paradoxical or don't really make sense, or there's some kind of inconsistency, um, how would I organize it? Now, I think the thing about all my books is that if you look at them once they're written, the structure seems totally obvious and unimaginative. You're like, yeah, do a happiness project, divide the year into months, pick a theme for a month, pick a couple of resolutions for each month. It seems like, yeah, like that can't. Okay, that took, I think my agent, I had to rewrite the proposal three times or four full times with completely different structures because to find one that really worked. Wow. Um, yeah. The thing about structure is that when it works, it seems obvious and effortless. Um, but as we all know, a lot of times the things that seem effortless or the simplest are often the most difficult to create. But then once I got to the idea that there would be a year and each each month would be a theme, then it was like, okay, well, what are the top 12 themes for me? Because I had to pick the top 12 areas that I wanted to work on in my life. And, of course, the thing is like you, Jessica, in your happiness project might have worked on different things. Like maybe music was really important to you or travel is really important to you, things that were not important to me. Um, So it's really the story of my happiness project. So what What were some Some of the themes Ah. that you picked for your year of happiness? Yeah. Well, the first theme I picked was energy, because I figured if I had more energy, everything would be easier. And I really uh, I wrote Happier at Home and I wrote uh, Better Than Before, which is all about habit change. I really have come to believe that's true. If you're going to start and you're wondering, where should I start? Always start with things that have to do with your energy level, because the more energy you have, the more capable you feel of doing other things. Maybe, you know, you'd be happier if you started a book group, but you're so exhausted that you feel like I can't face like sending the emails and handling like, oh, when are we going to meet and just like dealing with it and looking up that person's email because she has a new job. It just feels insurmountable because you're so exhausted. So I started with energy and I think that was a good place to start because it did make everything easier. Um, You know, and then a lot were relationships. So there was marriage and parenthood. Um, one was sort of eternity, which is sort of like my like my attempt to get transcendent matters into uh, my daily life, because I think a lot of times we get sort of swallowed up with the petty details, and we lose track of transcendent ideals and values, and then your life feels very small. And so, so one of my favorite resolutions was to imitate a spiritual master. This is a really, really fun resolution, because it requires you first to pick a spiritual master, and there's... So many people people could choose to be a spiritual master. It could be somebody you know, it could be somebody from history, it could be a fictional character, Dumbledore, you know. Um, Who did you choose? I chose St. Therese of Lisieux, um, and she is a Catholic saint. I'm not even Catholic, but I love spiritual memoirs. The minute I started her memoir, Story of a Soul, which is her spiritual memoir, I was like, this is my spiritual master. And I probably, I I was also obsessed with St. Therese. I have like 17 biographies of her, and it's really nice. My, My readers will often send me like, Oh, here's this frame picture of Saint Therese. I know you love her. Here it is. I'm like, great, I'll put that on my mantelpiece. Um, but so, so, so the thing is like, okay, but Saint Therese died at age 23. She lived in France. She lived most of her life in a cloistered convent with like 50 other nuns. So her life and my life are nothing alike. And so part of it is who's your spiritual master? And then to imitate, you have to think how would I translate my spiritual master into my life? Like, how do their values and principles? translate into my experience, because a lot of times you would pick a spiritual master who is living in very different circumstances and maybe even talking in very different terms. So I've heard from people who have so many different kinds of spiritual masters. So it tells you something about yourself mm-hmm. to know who you would choose. And then also you have to study that person so that you would know kind of what they stand for and how you could imitate them.
0: So what did you do to imitate her or to bring her spirit uh, yeah, into yeah. your life?
1: She's known as the little flower. She's very focused on little things and sort of ordinary virtues. So it's really about can you live an ordinary life uh, and in small ways aim for the kind of perfection that she was able to embody. And so it is about little things and also just sort of being good humored. She writes a surprising amount about just sort of like cutting people slack, not taking yourself too seriously, um, not having your feelings hurt, like ascribing to people. The best intentions. That's why I think she appealed to me because it was like these little things. You don't have to do something gigantic. You can just do something in your ordinary life. I love that. Yeah.
0: The first thing you mentioned was energy. So I just want to get some concrete examples of so you say there's a month where you want to have more energy. Yeah. So what does that mean? What does that look like for a month? Yeah.
1: Well, it's very obvious. I mean, this is like the most obvious, which is get enough sleep and get some exercise. You know, like those are the things that you do to get energy. And and those are the short-term things. Now, ever since I wrote that, I've been collecting kind of emergency energy tips, because a lot of times people are like, well, you know, it's Wednesday afternoon and I'm, and I'm, you know, uh, about to pass out and coffee isn't working anymore. What do I do right now? I can't change the time I went to bed and maybe I can't even go to the gym right now. So what could I do? So then there's things like do 10 jumping jacks, listen to your favorite upbeat music. That's a really good way to get more energy. Um, Enjoy a beautiful smell. I'm also obsessed with the sense of smell. Like a beautiful smell is so pleasurable. It ties you to the moment. Um, But there's no planning, there's no cost, there's no calories, there's no, you know, you don't have to organize something. You can't bookmark it, you just experience it in the moment. Mm. And not to let yourself get too hungry. Sometimes people get, you know, they're just starving, so they start to kind of crash. Pick
0: one more theme from the month and tell us what the theme was and how, how you experienced it and how you practiced getting better at Mm. it during the month?
1: Well, so one thing I picked was marriage. One of the things that really struck me is this research that shows that married people show less consideration to their spouses than they do to friends or even strangers. So really the person who's like the love of your life allegedly is like the person that you are the rudest to. Um, So I tried to do things like fight right, which is to really work on uh, having a sense of humor and talking in a way that was kinder. And, um, and then just showing consideration, um, like looking for small ways to be considered. To even say something like, I'm going to the drugstore, do you need anything? So it's just like a gesture of thoughtfulness or like kiss every morning, kiss every night. So, um, which some people think is silly because it's like, oh my gosh, do you have to put everything on your calendar? But I'm like, if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't get done. So I'm- Do you not... actually put kissing on your calendar? I don't put it, no, I don't need to. And now, that, and that's, it's funny. I, I know now why I do not need to put that in my calendar because I learned from later books that I wrote um, but I definitely do do it. I mean, I definitely, in my mind, I'm like, this is a thing I have to do. It's a habit. I just have the habit of kissing my husband first thing when I wake up and mm. always before I go to bed.
0: And do you find that that act or other things that you did in the month um, made a difference yeah,
1: in your home, and your marriage? Absolutely. And it's interesting because people, one of the things that people say about a happiness project is they're like, well... I would be happier if other people be- behaved properly. So here's my long list of what other people need to do, and that's going to be my happiness project. And I'm like, well, yeah, it doesn't work like that. The only person we can change is ourselves. But it really is true that if I change, a relationship changes, and if I change, the atmosphere of my household changes. And so when I act more lovingly and calmly and with more consideration to my husband, then he behaves differently to me. You know, So I can change him in a way, but only through changing myself. And so I absolutely do think, you know, when I behave better, everybody else behaves better. When I don't lose my temper, then everybody else stays calm. And if I go to sleep on time and have energy in the morning, then that kind of feeds the energy of my household. And you focus on one theme a month. As the months
0: continue, do you make sure that you're keeping the, the practices that you learned in that month?
1: Yeah, so everything's cumulative, except for something that didn't work. For instance, I've tried meditation a couple of times, and it just doesn't work for me. And I've read all the research and had all the smartest people tell me, like, this is why you should meditate. And I'm like... I don't know what to tell you, but it doesn't do a thing for me. It just It's just annoying. And um, and then they're like, well, that's all the more reason you should meditate. You need it even more desperately than the average person. And I'm like, well, wow. I, I so it doesn't work for me. So I've tried it, but it didn't make me happier. So I abandoned it. Or a gratitude journal. This is like the most common happiness advice. And often people will say to me, like, oh, you recommend keeping a gratitude journal. I'm like, I talk about the advice to have a gratitude journal. I myself do not keep a gratitude <laughs> right. journal because I found it deeply annoying. <laughs> but... It is something that many people find helpful, but I don't find it helpful, so I don't try to keep a gratitude journal anymore because it didn't work for me. Um, but most things that I tried, I tried because I thought they would make me happier, and then they did. So I've stuck with them. Yeah,
0: stuck with them all these years. Not yes. just not yeah. just in the months you yeah. were writing the book yeah. or the few yeah. months after, yeah. but you've kept them. Yeah. So here's what strikes me: so you write these books, and you have these themes, and within each theme, you have multiple steps that will help you. With your marriage, with your energy, with your low sugar, with whatever. If you add up the number of things that you're doing, Mm. that could be like a part-time job. Mm. On top of that, you've got kids and a husband and a job and the podcast and the this and that. So how, how do you keep these habits going?
1: Okay, so that's a very interesting question. And people have asked me that ever since the Happiness Project came out. How do you keep yourself doing all these things? And I was always like, well, they make me happier so I don't understand what the big deal is. But... Another epiphany. So when I was writing better than before and I was trying to understand how people could make or break habits, I started noticing these patterns of how people struggled with habits or succeeded with habits. And one of the things I began to think about was like, I myself, I, Gretchen seem to have a particularly high affinity for habit formation. I have all these dozens of habits, and they don't weigh me down, and they don't make me feel resentful or overburdened. They make me feel free. Discipline is my freedom.
0: You are so lucky. (laughs) But not everybody feels that way, right?
1: And that's what led me to my understanding of the four tendencies, which is something I write about in Better Than Before, and it's actually the the whole subject of my next book, which is this personality framework about how people – Um, fall into these categories of upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels because they have very, very different perspectives on the world and they face different challenges with something like doing a happiness project and they would need to set it up in in a different way in order to be able to stick to it. And I figured out like my pers- I'm a my type is upholder which means I readily meet outer and inner expectations and I have a high affinity for habit forming and I also tend to love things like schedules and routines familiarity predictability and performance all of which helps uh, me keep these habits but what I found is that's a very tiny number of people. My tendency, my type, is very small. Not that many people are like me, which explains why people are like, how do you do all this stuff? And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, what's the big deal? It's like, okay, very few people are like me. Most people are of a different tendency. How did you come up with these tendencies? Just, just noticing. I, You know, it was interesting because I was trying to understand, again, like, as I was gathering all this information about habits and taking, pa- you know, like, h- hundreds of pages of notes, I started to notice some weird things, like... You know, when you talk about people being conscientious, like on the big five personality traits, to me, as a highly conscientious person, it didn't look like another person was a was a three and that they were kind of conscientious. It was like sometimes they're super conscientious. And then other times, to my mind, they weren't conscientious at all. And that I was like, I don't understand why they're flipping back and forth. And then I and I had a couple, again, like epiphany conversations. One, I was at a cocktail party and I was talking to a woman and I said to her what I said to you. Discipline is my freedom. I I cannot even tell you how true that is for me. And she said to me, well, that sentence doesn't make sense because freedom means no rules. And I was like, that's not what freedom is for me. And we started talking about it. And I'm like, you see the world in a profoundly different way from the way that I see the world. Like, we are just like, whew. And, um, and she was having that feeling too. She was almost like backing off away from me because like what I was saying, she was like, oh my God, that sounds like the worst life ever. I'm like, I love to wake up in the morning and plan out my whole day, hour by hour and cross things off my to-do list and nothing's more fun than, you know, she's like, oh my God, that sounds like hell. Um, and then a friend of mine said something uh, where she said, she goes, I know I would be happier if I exercised. And the weird thing is when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? And this, to me, like, it was like sirens started going off in the restaurant because I'm like, that is a crucial question. That is what I need to understand. What has changed? Why is it that at one time this behavior was effortless and now she wants to do it just as much, but she's not able to do it? What is the difference? And um, and so there were all – and then I started noticing these, like, funny things. Like, when I would ask people about New Year's resolutions, if you're talking to people about habits, New Year's resolutions come up a lot. So I would talk to – there was a certain number of people that always used the same vocabulary. They would say, I would keep a resolution, but I, if I wanted to keep a resolution, I wouldn't do it on January 1st because January 1st is an arbitrary date. And they all said that, arbitrary. And I was very struck by that because I thought – the arbitrariness of January 1st does not bother me, but it's clearly pushing these people's buttons in exactly the same way. And then I started thinking, well, maybe they're all, something about them is the same. And so, and then once I started seeing these patterns, it became very obvious that people fell very into these very distinct four categories based on how you respond to outer and inner expectations. And I mean, extremely consistently and also pre- predicting. I could, I could say to somebody like, oh, if you're a questioner, did your teachers say this? Does your spouse complain about this? Have you ever gotten into trouble at work because of this? Do you ever experience this phenomenon? Um, and it's very predictive. So I, I do my research more just by looking and talking to people. There's really no way to research it because it's something that I invented. Mm. Yeah.
0: So this is your current book, something you're working on, or that's it's com- done. It's done. <laughs> it's
1: coming out in September, and so it's all about the four tendencies. Because once people sort of understood them, and maybe I should explain what they are. Oh, yeah. Please. So you can take a quiz at slash quiz if you want to take a quiz. But most people don't need to take the quiz; they can tell just from uh, from a brief description. So it has to do with how you respond to outer and inner expectations. So outer expectations are like a work deadline. Inner expectations are like your own desire to get back into meditation. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectation. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what's expected of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important as others' expectations for them. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They hate anything arbitrary or inefficient or irrational. Their first question is like, well, why should I listen to you? Um, And so in a sense, they make everything an inner expectation because if it meets their inner criteria, They'll do it, but if it doesn't meet their inner criteria, they just won't. Um, which can get them into trouble. Uh, then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So that's my friend on the track team. When she had a team and a coach, no problem. When it's just her own desire to go for a run, she struggled because there was no because she she struggles when there's there's no um, outer accountability. And then there are rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own time, in their own way. And if you ask or tell them to do something they're very likely to resist, and they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Rebel is the smallest tendency, and obliger is the largest tendency. That's the one most people, the largest number of people fit into. So from based on that, do you have a sense of what you might be?
0: Maybe this is something for you to comment on, but is there a little bit of all of these in each of us? We all
1: have a little bit. Like, nobody wants to do something totally inefficient or arbitrary. Nobody likes to be bossed around too much. But it's sort of like if your boss said, hey, I need this by Friday, would you be like, no problem, okay? Or would you be like, "Why do you need it by Friday?" because I don't think you're going to read it till Wednesday. Or, is, or are you going to be like, "You know what? You're not the boss of me." Even if you are the boss of me, you can't make me. I'm going to do it my own way. You said 10 pages, I'm writing 45, and it's going to be like the best thing you've ever seen in your life. You know what I mean? So there I think I think we all have a little bit about it, but there is sort of a dominant flavor to kind of our first inclination. So, you have this book that's coming yeah. out in September. So since that one is done,
0: I'm sure at some point you'll be thinking about publicity, etc. Yes. Yeah. But has your new aha moment come for your next book?
1: Yes, a uh, Yes. Am a I allowed to
0: ask? <laughs> uh,
1: it's a little premature yet. I'm still working on it. But yeah, I definitely, and I've already started taking a ton of notes. And yes, yeah. So, wow, so yeah. You,
0: ne- you never stop. There's no downtime, really.
1: I've been really lucky that way. I've never sort of been without an idea for what my next, I've always been like chomping at the bit to start the next thing. That's that's awesome.
0: As we come to the end of the interview, um, there are just a few questions I want to ask, and I actually want to backtrack for a second. I do have a question about better than before and about the habits. What if somebody, has something that they wanna work on. So so weight comes Comment, to mind yeah. and someone could do the Atkins diet and a yeah. sugar-free diet and a this and a that, but they can never quite get it right. For something like that, um, what's going on and how do you fix
1: it? How do you create a habit that sticks? That is the crucial question. I mean, you put your finger right on the like, the million dollar question. And what is, I think, the mistake that many experts make and that many people make when they're trying to follow expert advice is what they're looking for is the best way. There is, what is the best way to lose weight? What is the best way to exercise? Well, this is what I need to do. This is the best way. And the fact is, there is no one best way. There is only the best way for you. And so, what I try to do in Better Than Before is say these are 21 strategies. These are every strategy that a person can use to make a brick or break her habit. 21 is a lot, and that's good because some of these are gonna work for you, Jessica. Some of these are gonna work for me, Gretchen. Some won't. Some are available to us at some times, but not at other times. But the first question is like, well, what kind of person are you? Because the kind of thing that would work for one person is not necessarily gonna work for someone else. So you really have to begin by saying to yourself, what kind of person am I? And um, when have I succeeded in the past? And just to use the example of of food, because because that is a very common one that we're talking about. So one of the strategies is called the strategy of abstaining. For some people, like me, I'm an abstainer, it works very well to do you're we're kind of all or nothing people we can have none and that's not hard for us but once we start we go all the way i can have no cookies i can have 11 cookies i can't have one cookie i can't have half a dish of ice cream because i have such a sweet tooth but i can have none but moderators are people who need to have a little bit or they have they want to have something sometimes so they're the people that have the bar of fine chocolate in their drawer and every day or two they have one square of fine chocolate and they're like well that's all i need and so and that's what works for them. And the same thing with, like, technology. My sister had to give up. She talks about it on the Happier podcast. She had to get, go a cold turkey with Candy Crush. It was it was affecting her career and her physical health, literally. It was like, I'm like, you got to give it up. Like, her seven-year-old son was like, Mommy, I must delete this up from your phone. I'm like, if your seven-year-old is doing an intervention... <laughs> Delete the app. You can't play a little bit, you know, so try playing none. And that comes up a lot. And so, but for some people, it's easier to have none. But the thing is, people always say, well, it's better to be moderate. And people say this to me all the time. It's not healthy to be so rigid. You're going to like binge if you don't allow yourself to cheat. You should have a cheat day. Follow the 80-20 rule. And I'm like, no, for me, it's easier to have none. I like to have none. That is easy. Then I don't have to make decisions and I'm not tempted by things because I'm like, well, do I, am I going to eat this cookie? No, because I don't eat sugar. You just don't. You just don't. I just don't. It's my birthday. Am I going to eat it? No, because I don't eat sugar. Oh, it's Christmas. Are you going to eat it? No, I don't because I'm not going to eat sugar. Now, there are planned exceptions if you don't want to be total like that where you're like, I'm going to look forward to it. I'm going to break my rule because I'm a grown up. I can do what I want. It's my birthday. I'm going to have a piece of cake. For me, it's easier to have none because I'm such an abstainer. But but I have a good, good friend who's a moderator, and she tried to quit sugar, and it really messed with her head. It wasn't good for her. She was better having a little bit because that then that was just a healthier way for her to go about doing it. And just to think about like, well, I want to be healthy, so I just want to have a little bit." And she could have a little bit. But people will constantly say, "Well, you're doing it wrong. It's not you're not that's not the right way to do it. I'm like, it's the right way for me. This is what works for me. Something else could work for you. Morning people, night people. Some people are like, get up early and exercise first thing. I'm like, night people can't get up early. They can barely get to work on time. They're not going to get up and go for a three-mile run in the morning. That's just setting themselves up for failure. Um, do it the way that's easier for you. That's the key thing is to start, is to begin by saying, what is going to be easy for me to stick to? What appeals to me? What's the kind of thing that's worked in the past? How do I set things up? For me, and the fact that Steve Jobs did something else or my sister-in-law did something else and they had great success, it's like, well, it might not work for you. It might work for you. Maybe you could learn from it. I've learned it from other people's habits a ton. But then sometimes I'm like, yeah, this doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. Yeah. So I would say that's the thing.
0: Love that. So also backing up in the interview, you had mentioned that after the JFK book Mm -hmm. came out, that maybe wasn't your so, most yeah, successful. No. But then you had this epiphany to do the Happiness Project and you started working on it and and you went from there. Um, I just wanna know, was the JFK piece a disappointment? And if it was, how did you bounce back and how did you get the fortitude mm-hmm. um, to right. take this idea that you were initially just gonna do for yourself right? but that turned into a book? Right. Or well, was t- it not a bounce n- n- back? N- n- I don't n- n- know. N- n- well, what, it
1: was, was... There's two things. I mean, I think one thing is when you're doing something that you really love, if it doesn't work out, it, you might be very disappointed, but it is not as bitter. Because it's like if if you hate your job, but you're like, oh, my gosh, all I need, all I want to do is make partner in a law firm, and then you don't make partner in a law firm, then you feel like, oh, my gosh, I've just wasted all these years, and it's all been for nothing, and that's really devastating. The thing about the JFK book is I loved writing that book so much. I can't regret it. Like, the process of writing it was so was so happy for me. I will say that I love all my books so much. Like, I love that book so much. I think that book is so good. and so so it was disappointing but it was not bitter because I still I'd had my fun along the way and I also feel like like when something disappointing like that happens I'm always like well what can I learn from it um because if I can learn something from this then again it also is less bitter I had a former boss who would always quote Benjamin Franklin who says experience keeps a dear school and a fool will learn in no other and I think a lot of times the only way we do learn hard lessons is through experience and through Uh, a difficult experience or a painful experience. And what I learned from JFK was I need to build a direct relationship to my readers. And that has been such a powerful engine in my life. It's been such a source of happiness and energy and ideas. Um, It's helped me in my career. But if that book had been halfway successful, would I have learned that lesson? Perhaps not. And so... I feel like in the end, I had a great time and I learned a very important lesson, so I can't regret it.
0: So as we come to the end of the interview, I just have one final question. I really see you as the happiness and the
1: habits guru. Oh, excellent. (laughs) Yes, that's great. I'll take it.
0: So there is much... I need a (laughs) t-shirt, yes. You do. Like
1: like something for my desk.
0: So I'm just curious, from all the research you've done and and what you're currently working on and the books you've written, um, what's the advice... That Mm. comes to mind.
1: Right, right. Like the secret of happiness? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Or or anything you want to share with the audience in closing?
1: I think there's two answers to the question of like, what is the secret of happiness or what's the most important thing or, you know, what would you emphasize the most in a happy life? And there's two answers depending on how you frame it. One is relationships. Ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that if you look at the people that are the happiest, they're the ones that have deep, enduring bonds with other people um they can confide um they get support and they also give support which is just as important for happiness and um they feel like they belong and we need that for a happy life and so anytime you're thinking about well should I should I go to my college reunion should I have a super bowl party should I start a book group should I have my family over should I you know send that email to a friend If it's something that's gonna broaden your relationships or deepen your relationships, it's probably a good thing to do for your happiness because relationships are so central. And if you're feeling lonely, um, we did a whole episode about loneliness on the Happier Podcast because it's such a happiness stumbling block and there's so many different kinds of loneliness. You can be very lonely in some ways and then not at all lonely in others. So that's one, is relationships. But then I think another way to look at it is to say self-knowledge and that we can only build a happy life on the foundation of our own nature, our own values, our own interests, our own temperament. And you say, well, of course I know myself because I just hang out with myself all day. But it's actually very hard to know ourselves. And so I think one of the things that I try to do in all my books is like, how can you get an insight into yourself or how can you ask yourself a question like, whom do you envy? Or what did you do for fun when you were 10 years old that maybe can trigger self-knowledge because they're coming at it at a different angle? You have to do your own happiness project. You have to do habits in the way that are going to work for you. There's no template. There's no one pager that you can download off the internet that's going to tell you how to do it. Um, you have to really start by knowing yourself, which is, by the way, the most ancient knowledge uh, of all time. It's know thyself is on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. So this is not like copyright Gretchen Rubin. But- it, it's old advice because it's true.
0: Well, it's great advice. And not many people take the time to do it. Yeah, so no, that's
1: the thing. It's a, it's a lifetime's effort.
0: It is. It is. And it's wonderful that you have taken the time and in turn taught us the steps that we would need to take to get there ourselves. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. for your This time was so fun. Just, I feel like we could talk all day. We really could. Yes. Really. This went way too fast. Um, but it was such a treat. Thank you for your words and your wisdom. And listeners, thank you for listening. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. We'll see you next time.